Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Culture Journalist. So a couple of weeks ago, the musician, artist, and baby mama of Elon Musk, Grimes, made a cool $5.8 million in 20 minutes by selling copies of two very short, we're talking like seconds short, videos on the blockchain, among other digital artworks. Each featured a cherub floating in outer space set to a bit of spacey music. The week before that, the artist Christian Torres sold a gif of a famous cartoon cat, Nyan Cat, at auction for over $540,000, even though that image had long been available in the form of a YouTube video, where it went viral in the way that kind of makes it belong to all of us. Then we have Kings of Leon, which is an act, you know, hardly associated with the cutting edge of music and technology, who followed in their footsteps on March 5th, when they became the first major rock band to release an album as an NFT, or non-fungible token or asset, which loosely translates to a kind of digital certificate of ownership that exists on blockchain. Their album, called When You See Yourself, has netted somewhere between $1.4 and $2 million in five days. And the auction isn't even over yet. And since then, artists like Tori Lanes, Mike Shinoda, Steve Aoki, and Shawn Mendes have also jumped on the NFT bandwagon. For fans of independent music, it's been a bit hard to witness the NFT sudden eruption in the conversation without feeling a bit queasy, dizzy, confused. You know, we spent most of the first season of The Culture Journalist talking about how the pandemic had escalated and exacerbated the structural inequalities of the culture industry. And now here we are. How is this spectacle of already popular artists making unimaginable sums of money by selling their work as speculative assets on the blockchain supposed to be anything but a reminder of the excesses of financialization and the widening gap between the rich and the poor. At points, the frivolity has almost felt like a troll. After we wrapped this week's interview, we went back online and discovered that the artist Ryder Rips, who's always kind of known for his trollish antics, and his new bride-to-be, the rapper Azealia Banks, had used the technology to sell a sex tape as an NFT for $17,000. Just the fact that many of the beneficiaries of these buzzworthy sales donated a portion of the proceeds to charity almost feels kind of like a tacit acknowledgement of all the cupidity in the air. Although maybe the Ryder Rips and Azealia Banks stunt was just supposed to be some kind of commentary on that dynamic. For us, one question in particular has stood out. What does the unfolding NFT craze mean for the future of music, and particularly for independent artists? To help us make sense of this strange new chapter in the cultural economy, we enlisted Matt Dryhurst, a Berlin-based artist, technologist, and teacher who you've probably seen commenting on such matters on Twitter. He hosts the Fantastic Interdependence podcast with his partner, the musician Holly Herndon. And he's been exploring the possibilities of blockchain technology for some time and is a firm believer that it has the potential to rewire the economics of independent music from the ground up, just not in the way that you might expect judging from all the recent craziness. 
So today we're talking to Matt about how NFTs work, how cryptocurrency might represent a potential antidote to streaming's devaluation of music, and why the boom and bust market we seem to be heading towards doesn't even scratch the surface of what he says is just the GeoCities phase of this new technology's potential. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome, Matt Dryhurst. Thanks for coming on the show. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. We are stoked to have you here and to talk all things NFTs, which is suddenly like the biggest piece of news in culture, it seems, this week. So to kick things off, can you give us a brief explanation of what exactly an NFT is and how one might use crypto to sell an artwork or other valuable commodity? Yeah, okay, so I'm going to give two answers because the right answer to that question is an NFT is a non-fungible token, which when you're talking about something like the Ethereum standard, which most NFTs people are encountering refers to, it's something called an ERC-7221, which basically means it's like a token that has metadata associated with it that makes that token unique versus a fungible token, which is... Uh, interchangeable, right? So an NFT fundamentally is just a file type. When most people now think about NFTs in the news, they're thinking about the activity of people bidding on the title to a digital artwork that they are then able to resell on a secondary market. How might one use crypto to sell an artwork or other valuable commodity? Again, the real answer to that is there's a thousand ways you could do that. In the context of the current moment, the familiar thing is you know, people are going online with a MetaMask wallet, which is like a little wallet identity that lives on your Chrome browser. They're using small amounts of Ether to mint an NFT, which is basically certifying a title for a unique digital artwork on the blockchain. And then they're placing it in shop windows. Shop windows like Zora, Foundation, Super Rare, Rarible, OpenSea. There's currently 10 to 20 of these places. They're like digital storefronts, right? Exactly. I know you, you just did a whole episode just about this on interdependence. It was excellent. And people listening should go check that out as well if they're interested in this. You know, like a super simplified version, would it be almost like a digital marker that says that this piece of digital artwork, for example, mm-hmm. or whatever the item in question is, it identifies it as unique and it's often for things that don't have a physical presence or an object that would otherwise deem it to be like the authentic one. Would, would you say that's a correct way of summing it up? Pretty much, yeah. It, it is a little abstract, to be honest. A decent analogy, I think, is to think about like a car title. You know, like if you acquired a car or ever sold your car to somebody, you know, there's a title like a certificate that says, you know, you are the owner of that car and you pass that over to the person who's buying something. Now, in that particular circumstance, that title, you wouldn't confuse it for the car, 
right? But the title itself, it establishes the provenance of the car and it gives you a method to pass the ownership of the car over to somebody else, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's kind of a little bit like what's happening in this circumstance. Uh, what's confusing for people to get their head around is that you know, when you're bidding on, let's say, a GIF on Super Rare or something like that, the file itself isn't even in the blockchain. The file itself is like usually hosted on IPFS or some, usually a decentralized hosting infrastructure, maybe not. Um, but what's actually being traded is the title to the work, is the ability to say that I have acquired from the originator the ability to hold the title to this artwork and later potentially sell the title to the artwork to someone who you know, might want to pay more for it. It's abstract. It exists in other industries. It exists in the art world. You think in the art world, what's happening often is, you know, people are going and acquiring paintings and putting them in their living room. Uh, oftentimes that doesn't happen. Oftentimes paintings are acquired as speculative assets. And so the person buying the right to the painting, the painting stays in some kind of offshore storage facility. But these things are traded like abstract financial instruments, you know, and that's kind of a similar mechanism to what's happening here. Got it. Got it. So why is everyone suddenly talking about NFTs? It's like in Clubhouse chats, it's in Rolling Stone articles. I mean, it's, it's everywhere now. Uh, yeah, because some of them are selling for millions of dollars. I mean, that's it. And to be honest, I, it, it give you a bit of a, a background. Like I've been working in this space since before it existed. Right. And there's a thousand things we could talk about. I'm very excited about this space. There is a history. So for those who aren't familiar, basically when the prices of the tokens native to certain blockchain projects go through the roof, there tends to be kind of a broader uh, media moment around it because people are like, why is Bitcoin, you know, $40,000 or whatever? Right. At those moments, people then start having conversations about, is it worth it? Like, is anything really going to come from this? At which point the industry itself begins to respond by saying, no, look, people are really using it. There's real world applications for this. In 2017, when prices were going crazy, uh, people were pointing to CryptoKitties and saying, look, we have this collectibles game. It's not just for nerds who like talking about new economies. Like real people are using it. This justifies the prices, right? And the same thing's happening now, right? So the markets are being going crazy, which means there's a lot of crypto wealthy people who are throwing money around. And it's unusual as someone who's worked in the space for quite a long time, you don't know what the moments are going to be that capture the wider public imagination. I mean, I certainly know, Emily, you know, I've been talking about this for years, but like mm -hmm. it turns out that correlated to a crazy bull market run where prices are going crazy, people acquiring gifts or whatever for large amounts of money um, uh, is going to capture a lot of people's attention. Mostly, also in you know, in direct contrast to the fact that like everyone's at home, there's nothing else happening in the creative economy. And so, yeah. So my read on it really is that beyond any kind of sober conversation we might want to have about the actual utility of an NFT file type or any other of these system that we could talk about, is that in a sense, just like in 2017, you couldn't make a better marketing campaign for the space. And let's be real, right? The people who are spending millions of dollars are coming from crypto, they're spending money with crypto, and they're promoting crypto, right? So they're marketing themselves. In some cases directly, right, the Winklevoss brothers were bidding on Beeples on Nifty Gateway, which is their own platform, right? Mm -hmm. You're used to seeing Google spending a million dollars on like a marketing campaign where they get some 
artist to draw polygons on some building in Manhattan or whatever, <laughs> right? You're seeing the equivalent here, right? Where you're getting like very wealthy crypto people anonymously, pseudonymously uh, uh, buying really expensive, often very gaudy pieces of art um, in order to kind of flex and demonstrate the utility of of this new space. Just because this is a marketing gesture happening internal to crypto has no real bearing on the potential utility of these tools going forward. But I think undoubtedly that's why people care. People care because they see Grime sold $6 million worth of gifts. Beeple, it's probably up to like the tens to $50 million worth of gifts. I mean, yeah, that's that's why people care because they're like, hmm, maybe I should think about doing that because... There's just so much money involved in this. Pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think that the Grimes story where I don't know how much she made total, but I saw that she made like 5.8 million in 20 minutes was a prime example of the sort of seeming excess of this. And it also hit upon our world in an interesting way. It was just interesting to see this being used by a musician. She was selling like videos with music. And then later, then we also heard that the band Kings of Leon was selling their album as an NFT. Can you, for the lay listener, explain like, how does this tool potentially correspond to a musician using it to sell something or an album? It's a good question. I actually don't think that the format is best suited for a musician selling an album. I think that there's people... Most likely not Kings of Leon, but someone in their management saying, you might be able to make a quick buck here by advertising very loudly that you're the first musician to sell an album as an NFT, whatever that means, right? Like, Yeah. Emily and I were talking a little bit about this earlier, how, and it circles back to what you were saying about the marketing aspect of it. It just sounds like, I mean, Kings of Leon is like, you know, that's a band that has like nothing to do with and anything like cool or experimental, in, you know, in terms of like the medium of technology and music. They're the platonic ideal of a corporate mainstream band. You know what I mean? Grimes made perfect set or it was like totally not surprising. Right, right. Like, but then with Kings of Leon, it was like you could tell somebody at their record label was like, oh, NFTs, that's like popping off right now. No band has released it. Let's let them be the first band ever to sell an album on NFTs. How else are they going to get attention right now? They can't tour. They can't, I don't know. I tweeted today that somebody should do it for a piece of music journalism. Or who's going to be the first person to do it for a piece of music journalism? But yeah, why doesn't it work for music or how could it work for music? I mean, it could. Clearly what's happening, there's a guy called Blau or Three Lau or something. He's like an EDM guy who... I think he sold like 11 million in it. Yeah, like amongst the kind of big name, maybe little idea community, there's definitely managers like texting each other being like, hey, you need to jump on this um, for no other reason. There's like nothing really native to it. I don't even know how you, how or why you do it. Um, One of the core conceits behind this space is this idea that it's kind of a combination of scarcity and complete open access, which is also difficult to get your head around. Mm. But the, the basic idea is that, you know, when let's say the Grimes GIF, right? Like the Grimes GIF is owned by somebody, but everybody can see it, right? 
So it functionally, the only thing that's scarce there is the ability to resell that item and the, the bias, which is a big experiment in the space, which I think is actually quite an elegant, interesting idea, is that you know, the more people see and engage with something, the more valuable the ability to resell the original becomes, right? And the, the example they like to use in the space, which I think is not the perfect example, but like people talk about like the Mona Lisa, right? There's only one Mona Lisa. It lives in the Louvre. Everybody knows the Mona Lisa. There's no scarcity around access to the image of the Mona Lisa. People remix it. They make things in the image of it. But their argument is that every single time that happens, someone's incrementally increasing the value of the original, right? Mm. I don't think it's the perfect analogy, but it's useful just to argue what their point is, what the kind of common consensus amongst these kind of GIF auction platforms is. So when you're thinking about selling a record or something like that, you know, you want everybody to have access to it. And you want someone out there to be the person who has the status to say, look, I supported this thing. In some cases, maybe I brought this thing into the world. I made this thing happen, right? I think that that balance in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. And there's actually maybe many applications for music you could think of starting from that logic. But in terms of like using an NFT to sell a song or an album, it's a bit awkward, right? Because actually like the way in which these things have been rolled out thus far I need to repeat, an NFT is just a file type. You can use it in six gajillion ways that are going to be super applicable in music. But the way they've been rolled out at the moment, it doesn't feel like a particularly, uh, let's say, expansive or like interesting application of the tech uh, native to music. It's just trying to squeeze music into this little box in a short period of time, worried that the bubble is going to burst soon. I'm very critical of some of this stuff, but all of this in my mind is, is very separate from potential applications of this broader technology, which I think will be very advantageous for music. That kind of is embedded in my next question, which was, how does this technology to you foreground a new way of approaching questions of value when it comes to recorded music? And how do you see the sort of investment working when it comes to music or, or one way it could work? I can think of five ways. One way that's quite common right now that people who've been following this latest kind of NFT phase will be familiar with is what I just kind of described, right? You can imagine a scenario in which a patron comes forward and let's say there's a record that's of great historical value. We saw, for example, the Nyan Cat meme be sold, I think for half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. You could see someone come forward and say, there's this really special record out there that is maybe a cult hit that maybe hasn't been validated. I want to be the patron and you know acquire that moment in this net new media landscape, right? I want to be the one that picks up the whatever the Prefuse seventy three record or something and says, "This is iconic." You know, that's one thing that we will see happen, right? There's another way to do it. You can see a scenario where you say, "We have a new record coming out. We need a patron." Mm. You know, a, a patron comes along. And at which point when that record is acquired in this new landscape, it becomes unlocked for everybody. We will see that. You can imagine a scenario which I think is more interesting, where artists will, I don't know, you take a Charlie XCX, whoever, who have a big fan base that they like to ask to do pre-work, like remixing and making artwork all the time, right? You can have a scenario where a Charlie XCX or someone like that says, hey, make remixes of my songs. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to mint an NFT of the best ones. And you're going to get 50% of the proceeds of that official piece of minted media. We're going to see that, which I think will be a positive. 
Are there applications for NFTs when it comes to like the back end or processes of creating art? I originally got involved in this space because I was, I mean, for numerous reasons, but I was particularly interested in this idea of like instantaneous splits between collaborators on things. Uh, it's one area where the space has, I think, really dropped the ball. You never know when what's going to go through the roof. You never know what moment people are going to start caring. But sadly, this story hasn't been told, and it's inherent to the space as far as I'm concerned, is this idea of using a smart contract. It's basically like a vending machine. It's a pre-programmed contract where you say, uh, Andrea, you're sending me a dollar, at which point that dollar is immediately split between myself and Emily, right, uh, with no intermediaries. It's just written into the code. We're going to start seeing that stuff roll out. That's a great application, I think, for music that hasn't yet been properly explored. I can see there's going to be uh, your Patreons of the world, your Substacks of the world are also in trouble. All Patreon and Substack is, is a private RSS feed and a payment processing system. That's mm -hmm. all they are. There's no discovery and they take 20% of stuff from that. They're in trouble. So, uh, you know, these patronage systems are going to start getting really, really more interesting. I'm working on something like that at the moment, actually. I haven't scratched the surface. There's literally a thousand ways these tools, these primitives, you call them in crypto, these basic elements are going to be combined to make for interesting music economies. The good news about it and why I stress at the beginning that it's important to not confuse this use case of an NFT with a GIF auction and this kind of like stock market speculation crap with the utility of the file type because the utility of the file type the good news about it, which I think is difficult for people to get their head around, you're used to be living in a world where, you know, Spotify makes a new decision about what its interface looks like, right? Facebook's not doing video anymore. Everyone's going to change what the fuck they're doing because there's a central body and a few designers in California somewhere who say, here's how the economy is going to work now, guys, right? That's not how this works, right? Many of these kind of uh, platforms that we're seeing now are built on open protocols. Within a few years' time, people such as yourselves, small communities will be able to build using these elements and these primitives, the economies that they want to see, right? And that's the idea I initially got excited about with this space. And it's just the thing to get your head around, I think, is to put steel in your stomach to get through this initial nuts period of hyper-speculation, et cetera, and think more, hmm, what would I build if I could program interactions with all the people I care about? And we all, you know, could go and make a publication together in which every dollar was immediately, immediately with no fees and no intermediary split between all collaborators. What would that look like? What kind of albums could we make doing that? What kind of labels? What would a label look like if that was a label was owned by 2000 people on the internet? Mm. These are the things that are activated by this technology and NFTs will play a part in that. It's so interesting. Yeah, I definitely was just like, I don't understand why somebody can sell a GIF that is available for everybody to see. Why does it need to be sold if this thing is already publicly available? And now I think you're kind of putting the pieces together for me a little bit. And that's the thing. I think the most difficult part, or, or in a sense, the most limiting part at the moment is if you're really used to how the culture industry is working currently, and then you're like, well, how would I sell an album like this? Kind of take the Kings of Leon example. That to me, it's an imperfect fit. It's like, no, actually the label of the future, which I'm even, I'm seeing, I'm, I've seen examples of this already working. The label of the future is like, why would you need to sell the album? Because 
you're going to get 2,000 people in a shared Discord together who all have equity in this record that they're collectively producing. There's potential here that really messes with the format of how people normally do things, which isn't to say that you know some traditional ideas like a publication or a label or some kind of safety net or foundation for people to feel some stability is not the absolute priority. But the most useful thing, I think, generally, which is difficult because you have to kind of grin and bear it, is reading the documentation and understanding what potential agreements or institutions could be formed from these new basic elements. And that's why also, yeah, universal and like big music companies are going to come along and are going to try and take advantage of this and they're going to fail. It's going to look lame. Yeah, and there was already rumors about Jack Dorsey, who is now offering to sell the first tweet ever for $2.5 million using Square, which recently bought Tidal, to like tie streaming to NFTs. <laughs> what is your initial response to that idea? Well, first off, he's certainly not selling the first tweet because there's an organization sent that's been doing that for ages. I actually have, I, I believe I have one tweet collector. Someone has collected the tweet. Of, I think they paid like a dollar for it or something. Wow. Which by the way, I'm not, I don't think is a particularly interesting idea, but he's certainly not the first one to do it. Um, <laughs> he's probably the first one to sell a tweet for millions of dollars though. I think someone bid something stupid for it. Um, I mean, well, Jack Dorsey is, um, he's a big crypto guy. He's been like a Bitcoin kind of evangelist for a number of years. Um, he's very, very interested in uh, the technology. He's actually come out and stated that this came out after they banned, I guess it was Trump or some idiot. Recently, he came out and made a public statement suggesting that long term, he likes the idea of turning Twitter into a decentralized protocol owned by its users, which mm -hmm. is nuts because you know this is something that has been a really fringe marginal idea that I've been working in and around for the last decade. He's very sold on the idea that the future of media is not, you know, a centralized kind of top-down platform, but rather a bottom-up owned protocol. So him acquiring Tidal, I think is very interesting. I have no idea what plans are for it. My suspect that there'll be plans that maybe aren't unfamiliar to the people who've been building Audius or any kind of music-based protocol in which a group of stakeholders own the protocol and keep the protocol running, kind of like a torrent network used to work, right? You need all those people there to keep the thing up. And then on top of that, you can build marketplaces and different interactions, et cetera. Jack certainly uh, isn't a pioneer in the space. Uh, he's very much downstream of pioneers in the crypto space. So I'd imagine that's what they were talking about. I saw the image of artists being placed in the center. Looks a bit to me like that's what he's talking about, which is stuff we've been talking about for years. So altogether, is it positive that Jack Dorsey's thinking like that? I think it is. Is it ridiculous that he's selling tweets for $2.5 billion? Yes. Do you see this technology as a potential antidote to streaming's devaluation of musical value? 100%. I cannot wait. They're shaking. Honestly, they're shaking in their boots. I'm really curious to hear what that's kind of going to look like and how that might actually play out. A couple of years ago, I gave like a speech that I was trying to make very profound, and they called it uh, Protocols, Duty, Despair, and Decentralization. The core idea of that was basically saying, look, we exist in this streaming paradigm of a few central actors who control everything. They set prices. They'll negotiate something with Taylor Swift or whoever, and everyone else's career has got to you know, live or die on the basis of that faulty calculation, right? Right. Um, 
are you happy with this? Many are. Let's be real. Many are totally content with that because many aspire to be that person. So Holly, my partner, she came up with, I think, what is the most devastating critique of streaming services that honestly, I wish I'd thought of it because given how much time I fucking spent on it, um, I'm annoyed that she came up with a better idea. (laughs) No, but her idea was, look, you know, like it's ridiculous for some kinds of music to be valued by how often they're played, which is so simple and so fucking true. It's absurd. Like you think about extending that logic to a movie, right? It's like, now, some movies, if you have a kid, your kid might watch Frozen 6,000 times. But there's only a few movies that exist like that, right? There are other movies that we all canonize and revere as the most foundational pieces of the 20th century or whatever. And you only need to watch them twice. Can you imagine if that was valued per stream, right? Like, it's an absurd idea that you have a one-size-fits-all dictated by those central people who, let's face it, also, we aren't their priority. That's so true. Such a good point. We've seen music kind of uniquely shift from something inextricably bound to art and identity to this passive quantity over quality commodity, really. The notion of subculture has also changed, right? Like one thing that we learned in the last 10 to 20 years is whereas when I was a kid, right, like being into extreme metal was this insanely risque thing, right? Like they're all kind of risque topics that, you know, the conservative middle, like, it's too hot to handle for them, you know, and I was cool because I was into all this weird esoteric shit. You found that, you know, in the age of platform capitalism, there is nothing out of bounds, right? If you have a niche, Instagram wants to know about it, right? So all these kind of 20th century subcultural ideas of like being risque or challenging, bring them on. Like every subculture is just a new target demographic, right? It's like fill in the blanks of metadata of your specific interesting subculture they don't give a shit. That's a new category to push ads to, right? Mm-hmm. So we live in this kind of time where it's like, yeah. well, what is the gesture for an artist if nothing that you do, nothing you wear, no way you express yourself, how harsh your music is, how unintelligible your music is, isn't a barrier to you reaching an audience through these platforms? What is the one thing you could demand that would existentially threaten them? And the answer is equity. It's the one thing they can't give up. You can be the craziest whatever and they're totally lapped up, no skin off their nose. But then you're like, well, wait a second. We contribute all this value to you, right? In the case of Spotify, you withhold all the data that we create. So we don't even have a direct line to our audience. We have to pay you every time we want to touch the audience. If you have a Facebook account or a Facebook page, you know exactly this dynamic. And then after all that, you collect all this information. You're selling ads off it back to us. And after all that, we don't own any of this? Like what? This is like... This is a a raw deal, right? And equity is what this space offers. If you want to actually like terrify people, you start to create a culture where you expect that, where you expect that if you're investing all this time into something, that you get something back in return, right? And now, don't get me wrong, like the, the most egregious cases of that are what you mentioned earlier, like the financialization of everything, seeing everything as an investment. Yeah, I'm not advocating for that as a way to run interesting marginal subculture. That will happen, don't get me wrong. But the idea of, of demanding equity is going to terrify Spotify. The fact that when I go on Clubhouse or whatever, places where you can like derive a little bit of a feeling and I'm hearing pop artists on major labels being like, huh, I would way rather build an ecosystem between me and my fans where we all have equity in it than spend all my time worrying how to get on a playlist. Like that's so boring. They're shitting themselves. And I love it. I love it so much because it's so good. And that's also why I keep saying like, 
you know, I get that like, you know, there's a lot to be grossed out by in crypto. Like I don't like 90% of music. I'm grossed out by most music. So I'm also grossed out by most crypto. I'm, I'm a snob. I'm an interminable snob. But the satisfaction to know that that one element, this decentralized equity-based element is making them shit their pants. I fucking love because they've had it really easy for 10 years. And for 10 years, everybody, there's been this consensus. Streaming is the future. Everyone's just going to pay 10 bucks. And Daniel Ek has this vision. And I love the fact that that's being challenged right now, right? And so that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the opportunity of the space. Yeah. And the last time that we spoke, Matt, was for a piece I wrote about, you know, kind of musicians' economic situation at the beginning of the pandemic. And at that time, the conversation was, can Spotify find some way to put money into the hands of artists? <laughs> and I guess there was the donations thing. But even that seemed like they didn't use that as an opportunity to pivot or kind of introduce something even similar in their new model. Yeah, no, they're an audio platform now, right? They don't deal with artists anymore. Yeah. And the thing is, to give credit, I mean, I, I shit on Spotify from my vantage point because for the stuff that we care about knowing a little bit about you both, right? Like, I don't think it's an appropriate fit, but they do a good job. They're smart people uh, for the things that they care about, right? And like, I've no doubt that Spotify will exist as like digital radio for a lot of people to just like drive to work and listen to some shit. And that's great, right? But what I love is that this is the cleavage point. And I think the the cleavage point basically is over time, there is an air of inevitability. There will be far more projects that enter the space. I don't even think there's going to be one winner in this space. That's the cool thing about it because you're going to see – 100, 200 different services that all work differently for different people. But I love that this is the cleavage point. Because as, as I mentioned earlier, it allows you to meaningfully in your actions and in how you conduct your practice, meaningfully disentangle yourself from the machinations of how streaming works. That's the opportunity. And things like a band camp or whatever, which I, I have all the love in the world for, to me, we're, we're kind of insufficient. I use the term Band-Aid for them. You know, it's kind of like this tourniquet, short-term COVID necessity, but long-term, if you want to do real damage and if, if you want to be building 21st century infrastructure, this is the space to do it. I'm not even biased. I'm just convinced. Uh, I'm, I've been convinced for years. So if I were an artist, had an album coming out, I could essentially get like one patron for an entire project or I could just have thousands of fans purchase equity in the project and thereby cut out these middlemen like Spotify or a streaming service or maybe not even need a label. Similarly, you know, us podcasters who you guys use Patreon, right? Yep. We use Substack. We could perhaps do this without having to give a cut to this middleman. Yeah, I mean, and I would say, you know, for those listening who fall in any of those categories, right, you're an artist making records, you're a journalist, you're a what, label person, whatever is it. My, my only advice for the short term would be don't stress yourself out thinking of ways to sandwich what you want to do into the very limited applications you're seeing right now. The far better approach, first off, I always have to use this caveat, none of this is some tacit or like clandestine suggestion that you go and spend money that you don't have to lose on speculative market assets. You know, don't buy any of these tokens if you don't know what you're doing. But I think the point is at the moment, if you're interested in this stuff, 
the best thing you can do is educate yourself on, for example, how Ethereum works, how other sidechains, Polkadot work, you know, Flow, Avalanche, whatever, Solana. Educate yourself on how they work, what the differences are. Educate yourself on what an NFT is. Educate yourself on what a fungible token is. Educate yourself on what a DAO is. We haven't even talked about DAOs. Like, educate yourself about all these different mechanisms that are coming and then think about how, in an ideal scenario, you might construct the outcomes that you want using these tools. Most likely, it's not going to look like a label from 1994 or a label from 2010. But if your goal is to say, I and a group of people want to fund new and exciting music and share in the upside or the profits that are generated from that music, which you know is technically, you could say that was a label. There are many ways to do that that don't quite look like a label, but look like something that's maybe more exciting. Same with the publication. I'm already, for example, in tokenized discords. Like who knew they were a thing? Whoa, how does that work? Talk a little more about that. Well, so basically there's um, you as a community, right? Let's say we made a community today. We call it, you know, Mia, because those are our our names. We would mint a Mia token, right? Which is really easy to do. You can do it for, I don't know, under a hundred bucks or something. At which point somebody would have to acquire that token in a wallet using a decentralized exchange like a Uniswap. Um, So they would trade a little bit of Ether for a little bit of Mia token. Once they have that Mia token in their wallet, there's a service called Collabland. It's a bot that runs on Discord that lets it check what's in your wallet. If you have a Mia token in your wallet, you then get access to that private Discord, right? The more people that come in, the more liquid gathers in the community, the more money that's staked in there, right? Because we all hold these tokens and they're all worth about how much Ether, whatever. I'm in tokenized discords where they're commissioning new pieces from writers just for the discord, you know? What? They're t- yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is already happening. It's just not happening in music. Break me off a piece of that. Yes, tell us more. <laughs> well, right. So again, that sounds like a publication, but it's not really a publication, but it could be, which I think is really interesting, right? Because you've got, I mean, you know this, you know this probably more intimately than I do, right? I remember when magazines were the shit. That was where you got your information, right? And then there was a period of time over the last 10 years where magazines became the discussion topic that then broke off into Twitter, right? So if you wanted to participate in the magazine, basically, you might even read the article, but in most cases, you're just following people talking about the article on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the difference here is that, you know, in that particular case, well, you could say, okay, well, then there are people involved in music who's Twitter profiles and Twitter discussions or critique that happens on Twitter get more views than most magazines. So who's to say that they aren't just a new magazine in some way, right? Now, Mm -hmm. you start talking about a tokenized Discord where secondary conversations that magazines are stimulating are already happening on Discords. I found myself on crazy Discords before where I'm like, oh, I guess this is where all the weird people into house music talk about house music. I didn't know, right? But someone invited me to this thing. So why can't the Discord be the magazine? Why can't the Discord commission its own editorial? And then every year produce a printed paper of the best articles. If you can get a community of, you know, 50,000 people in there who are all holding this token. And by the way, it's not a scam. You can take the token out anytime you want, right? You're paying to access, but you can also take it out to leave. And in fact, if you take it out later, usually it's worth more than you originally paid, right? Mm-hmm. These ideas, these ideas completely changed the label in the magazine and we're going to see a fuck ton of them. You know, we haven't even talked about DAOs. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. It's basically a digital co-op. You can make one in 15 minutes. 
And it's basically similar principle. You pull your funds together and then your token that you hold is also a governance token. It lets you vote on shit, right? So you have a DAO of let's say a hundred people and there's whatever, $10,000 in the kitty. Those hundred people vote where that $10,000 goes. I know of DAOs like that that are legally approved. There's one called the Lao, and it's a venture capital fund, right? They have mm-hmm. millions and millions and millions of dollars in a pool And they're investing just like a traditional venture capital fund in new ideas in crypto directly from this digital co-op, right? Now, okay, some people are grossed out by venture capital, but it's the same mechanism that a label uses. They give you an advance, right? But you could do that with 100,000 people. You could do that with 10,000 people. You could do that with with 100 people. It's already happening. Maybe we're going to get together and fund some brick and mortar space somewhere. I'm personally really interested in this idea, right? Mm -hmm. Like these are tools to let you do that really, really quickly really quickly. Um, And the the limitation genuinely is your imagination. I don't want to be too hyperbolic about it, but it literally is. These are just new tools. Are there risks or limitations to this system? Is it going to have to hit some kind of critical mass of familiarity with the system and just, you know, people using crypto in general before this could achieve the kind of disruption or new normalcy that we've been talking about? Uh, Yeah, I mean, this conversation has come up a lot about like accessibility, for example. I think there's an interesting paradox there, right? Like, this is a really imperfect analogy because we're talking about different historical time periods, but like, this is the most accessible development of a new web that's ever existed, right? Web 2 existed, the developments of that, the early embers of that, people weren't using social media, right? Because it didn't really exist. Very few people had integrated iPhones into their lives. And a lot of it was being incubated by Stanford grads uh, funded by VCs in Silicon Valley in private, right? Like <laughs> So uh, Web 1, they made a lot of attempts Allegedly, I wasn't around there then, but they made a lot of attempts to try and make it a public conversation. But Web 1, nobody really knew what the fucking internet was, right? So we have this paradox at the moment where actually most Web 3 stuff is happening out in the open. You can go on YouTube, on the ClearNet, whatever, and find anything you want. You go into Discords, Telegrams, you can find out any information you want. The problem is, because it's happening in the open and because it's like alien to people, weirdly, paradoxically, it can feel like more people are left out because the language is weird. The tools are still in development. So weirdly by making the decision to not make decisions on people's behalf and just be like, oh no, this is what you're going to get. The bunch of developers around the world are just going to like cordon ourselves off and then come back and give you what you want, right? No, 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 that's not what's happening. This is the thing that's going to happen in the open and it's going to take a while for people to get their head around it. It just is. That's kind of inevitable. I do think that there are some risks. I mean, like we're going to see loads of gross shit but that gross shit does not invalidate or does not in any way kind of impact the potential for us to do cool shit. And that's what's different is like when you have a new platform like a Facebook come out or SoundCloud decides to change its model, we're all arguing about the same model that we kind of have no opportunity to change or do anything about. Mm-hmm. In Web3, when someone comes out and says, well, actually what I'm going to do is we're going to tie everyone's uh, birth name to a market and try and sell specu- you know, futures in people's careers. You can look at that and be like, yeah, that's really gross. Don't want anything to do with that. I'm just going to go build something else. There's not central control over uh, or a central mandate over what people need to do. Um, so yeah, so there's tons of risks. There's going to be loads of gross shit. There's going to be scams. There's still scams. 
But my gut is to say, look, Web2 feels like a dead end. Kind of the only opportunity we have is to think about using new tools to build new infrastructure with the only other potential possibility being some like state intervention that all of a sudden makes life better for artists. But I'm not going to hold my breath on that. I'm sorry. I love I love the idea of it. Yeah. It's a beautiful idea and I would vote for it if I had the ability to, but ah, come on. I think the best bet people have is to educate themselves on these primitives, educate themselves on what the new web might look like and have ideas about what they want it to look like um, and start putting it together. Is there any risk that if you build something on these currencies, that if the currency like Ethereum crashes, it can screw you over? (laughs) Yep. 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 100%. I suspect it's not going to happen. It could happen with some of the smaller chains. We've kind of reached a point where Ethereum and Bitcoin, for example, Ethereum being the main kind of infrastructure that's being used for these things for the time being is fairly stable. Like, I don't think we're going to see a time where the Ethereum price goes down to 30 bucks again, you know? If anything, I'd say it's probably the opposite. But what you can do in those circumstances, let's say, is there are things called stable coins. So there's USDC, USDT, DAI, REN. There's all kinds of different stable coins. And so what you can do, and I think if you were looking to build a really stable service that artists were to depend on, you would want to look at stablecoin infrastructure because what you're doing there is you're kind of locking in the dollar value of things, mm. right? There's a lot of infrastructure that already uses this outside of the arts where you're able to, for example, say like, I want my network to run and I'm just going to keep it super simple and keep it super stable for people. I'm going to have the currency that's being transacted be DAI or something or USDDC, um, which basically will peg the value of that token that they're holding to the dollar. Or maybe certain kinds of currencies that are more volatile could be pegged towards something more one-off. And not your entire career. 100%. I know of people building mutual funds for squads of people. So the idea being like, what if you could tie... Some people get grossed out by this because they want to pretend like investment doesn't exist, as if it's not really in our interest to think about investment at this particular right. point in time as as like just adults in the fucking world, right? There are people who are like, well, what if you were to make a publication altogether and then you all vote using your tokens to invest... of profits that come in per month into a mutual fund that everybody owns, right? So this becomes like a reserve pool of support just in case something bad happens that you have this investment fund there. There's levels and levels and levels to this. And personally, I think that's really cool and really sober. And one, one pushback I get often is that there's a lot of people who just don't like crossing streams, right? They don't like the idea that uh, the reality of commerce and the reality of finances and the reality of honestly precarity uh, intersect heavily with creative work, with creative labor and creative output. Now, anyone who's a pro isn't grossed out by that because they know that that's absolutely 100% the case, right? You, like your work is tied to finances, whether you like it or not. And so I think that like these two things being tied and within the control of communities or individuals is in my mind, incredibly beneficial, even if, yeah, I, I wish the world worked differently. I wish we could go back to some time I didn't know existed where, you know, school was cheap and artists could just make cool records and like live bohemian lives. I would love to go back to that. That's when all the standards were made, but now we've got to live under those standards. Right. And like, I'll come here and talk about mutual funds between scenes being like, Hey, what if you could all pull your money together and like support each other when crises hit and invariably older people will look at me and be like, 
you're just financializing everything. And I'm like, where the fuck have you been? Everything is financialized now, right? Like the, I teach 18, year, 19 year olds, like they grow up in a world where, you know, they're in junior school and people know their follower counts, right? The icons that they watch on YouTube are talking about follows. Hey, we need to get this video to a thousand likes before I make another one, et cetera, et cetera. They've been living in a financialized hell for like 10 years. It's just people in their 30s and above were completely aloof to it because we still live in the 20th century. We're still, still talking about album campaigns, right? And like <laughs> all these kids have been exposed to this brutal, brutal market financialization for the past 10 years. And they love these ideas because they're like, oh, wait, I could have some equity in it. Like mm-hmm. I'm not grossed out by this stuff. I just want some security and some fucking uh, some control and like and some kind of a say in the fu- in the economy that I participate in. This is wonderful. So actually the problem is mostly people like our age and up who still have these standards, I think, from an older, like more romantic, beautiful time where they're like, oh, but art should be liberated from, you know, all these weird, and it's like, where were you? When was market, when was art ever liberated from, from finances or market pressures? Like, did you go to art school? If you didn't, that's the reason why, because it's really expensive. You need to be really rich to do this shit. You need, like only the rich people could live the bohemian fantasy of the 20th century, right? Like you want to be like hanging out in New York, just making music all day. Like have, I would love that. I never got to have that. I have to think about money, right? I think the thing that worried me when I saw these headlines about people like Grimes or gifts selling for all this money was that it was sort of pegging value to virality or something sort of building on what you were just saying that you know oh of course if I put this popular product out there that is viral then there will be value to it but then how does that solve the problem of as Holly said the piece of music that you know not everybody wants to listen to a million times or the piece of music that not everyone has to like but maybe there are ways to just use this for the, you know, 100 people that like the experimental abstract noise track that you put out or something. 100%. Exactly. And that's the thing is like, yeah, like nobody anticipated that billion, like million dollar gifts were going to be the first encounter that somebody who just wants to check out cool music online has with crypto. Nobody could have planned that. A friend of mine, Kia, was talking uh, the other day on Twitter, making some really good points. And she was saying that, like, you know, it's sometimes demotivating how much further negative news goes than positive news, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true. It's like, you know, bad news sticks, speculation sticks. It says something a little bit of the moment we live in. I think people are rather discontent right now, and that's totally understandable. I was referring to them as bad acts, you know, where it's like the sad news is when I tweet and say, hey, look, right? There are these tools that I think could make for the most interesting, like, magazine come archive label. Like, can you imagine that? Like, oh, we could tokenize this Discord and, like, have the Discord dedicated to smart people debating about what's missing from the archive of experimental music. Mm. How can we pull our funds together to maybe reissue those records and, like, canonize these things? The sad thing is, when I tweet stuff like that, three people retweet it if i come out and say fucking rich people buying their own fucking stupid gifts and killing the planet uh yeah if i did that right i guarantee you thousand retweets thousand retweets yes yes and look healthy skepticism and wariness is really cool but on the most serious note now's the time to take it seriously and think about what you want to do with it 
it's too easy to look at you know people you don't like doing things you don't like and suggesting that that is the only way to do things i talk often about like the aacm the art ensemble of chicago fugazi discord like the legacy i fell in love with music ultimately was this idea that people built their own shit because they didn't like the way other shit worked right it's the challenges of kind of like using web two to advertise web three yeah totally and, and getting out of web two mindset where it's like you know it's a, it's a difficult conceptual leap. I get it for people. I've been one of these people. It's like, oh, Spotify did this thing. Like, fuck them. You know, they made the wrong decision and I would have made the right decision. And now it's like, well, you can. Mm. Yeah, it's a different mindset. It's like, you can make that decision. This is like the GeoCities, barely the GeoCities era of the internet. We're not even close to what this is going to be. Are there any similar projects that you're working on right now that illustrate how something like this could look or others that are working on specific projects that you think could be fruitful related to music i'd say specifically yeah totally i'm personally very interested in royalty systems in profit split systems i'm definitely kind of working on some directly some kind of ambiently through like advising or just like checking in with people constantly thinking about how those tools could be rolled out and what things could be built. Um, I'm working on something with, with Holly at the moment that like we're really excited about. I'm a little scared that it's a bit too insane. But in the future shock circumstance, I think it's like a good... Uh, it's to do with basically thinking about um, ownership of rights um, and how that can be uh, explored in this space. Um, yeah, so I think the, the, the next big challenge that's going to take take a little bit is... You know, thinking about, so Jack Green, the producer artist uh, from Montreal, he recently sold a, an NFT that, and, and the claim was that it would represent the rights to the song. Now, that's kind of a gentlemanly agreement um, because Jack's then going to go and manually write that person into the notes of the song. A mission of mine over the past few years, I'm particularly interested in uh, trying to think of building systems to share DJ profits with the people whose music that they play. Mm-hmm. Um, ideas like that, I think, are really activated uh, by this space. Mm, that makes a lot of sense because the asymmetry there is really quite wild. You can have like some DJs making you know twenty grand, and and the person they're playing, not uh, you know. And I think there's a real problem there. Long term, I'm very invested and interested in this idea of bringing as much of that activity on chain as possible and making it work way better and way cooler and allow more people to participate in basically the fruits of their contributions, um, not to plug the pod, but like that's been the, the interdependence uh, kind of, there's all these systems that existed in web two that were very much prioritizing the individual, focusing on independence, which in my mind was like a cool idea. It's kind of run its course. And now we've seen that, you know, that fundamentally that isn't the objective, that, that actually like it can be quite isolating to be a fully independent agent. So the onus is on us within using these new tools uh, to think about interdependent structures and agreements that that just make things a lot healthier and don't put us in direct competition with each other. Rather, they they help us all build on on top of each other's work, uh, build something that that is sustainable and and, and uh, you know maybe even lucrative. You know, heaven for, heaven forbid we all get paid for what we do. That would be mm. that would be wonderful. Um, <laughs> so you know, the other side too is you know if anyone needed some kind of a guide. I personally really like the people at Zora. I really like the people at Foundation. Um, I really like the people at Audius. I really like the people at Catalog. 
they're good people. I've, I've talked to them. Um, I think that their heart is in the right place. I just can't wait. Right now, the current NFT discourse and debates are kind of like stuff that was happening in internal to crypto. These are conversations that were happening in like 2017. <laughs> and so I'm kind of like super excited for when we can start talking about like decentralized mutual funds. And uh, it's going to get so much crazier. People have no idea um, uh, for better and worse, for better and worse. But this is like... This is the, uh, you know, the train in the, in the cinema, you know, the, the first projected image where people thought the train was like actually in the room, you know, um, <laughs> this is that moment where everyone's like, oh no, the train's in the room. It's going to run us over. And it's like, no, no, this is the birth of cinema. There's so much more to come. You have no idea. Um, and that's exciting. That's really exciting. That's a great uh, image to end on, I think. <laughs> well, Matt Dryhurst, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an awesome conversation and we're stoked for what's next. If people want to follow more of your work, uh, what's the best way to, to stop you? Yeah, uh, um, I'm always on Twitter. It's Matt Dryhurst, M-A-T Dryhurst. And yeah, I podcast like once a week, basically through Interdependence. I think it's just interdependence.fm. Yeah, those are the two best places to stalk me if you want. That's it for our show. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our music was composed by Mark Donica. For more on NFTs and Matt Dreyhurst's work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And give us a subscribe, rating, or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism. 